There are scientists. There's the rest of us. And then there are citizen scientists. Welcome to Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. I'm Salwa Khan. Citizen scientists aren't professional scientists, but they volunteer their time and skills to support the work of scientists and educators on research projects. A scientist working on water quality issues may collaborate with citizen scientists who collect water samples and then enter the date, time, and location on a computer data sheet. In this way, the scientist gets invaluable help, and the citizen scientists learn about data collection and classification in research and about the water they rely on every day. In many cases, those who volunteer will get some training and may have to use special equipment. Projects may be limited to a geographic region or may be part of a global initiative. It's an exciting way for anyone with the desire, interest, and time to become part of a research project on climate change, on biodiversity, on tracking wildlife, or on other important issues. My guest, Leanne Lynham, is a wildlife biologist, a master naturalist, and an educator. It's an impressive resume, and as impressive is the citizen scientist program she developed. While working as a wetland biologist at Texas Parks and Wildlife, she began thinking of ways to get the average person really involved in wildlife conservation. As she tells it, her interest in putting people together with wildlife goes way back. Here's Leanne Lynham. Well, I've, I've loved wildlife for a long time um, because I grew up as the daughter of, the, of a manager of a national wildlife refuge here on Aransas Wildlife Refuge in Texas. And actually, I headed to Texas A&M intending to be a veterinarian um, because I'd read the James Harriet books. <laughs> and I got there and I took a wildlife ecology class as an elective. And I said, no, this is the fascinating stuff. And so I told my father that I was going to change to, to major in wildlife biology, and he knew that the job markets weren't as secure, but I think he was proud. <laughs> but I remember while I was there at A&M, I talked to one of the wildlife professors, and I go, I don't know exactly you know, which direction I want to go in this field, but I know that I want to tie wildlife and people together and make a difference. And so, you know, at that point, I was looking for how can one tie conservation in with people? And I didn't know how it would all unfold, but I ended up taking a job as a wetland biologist with Texas Parks and Wildlife Department. But at the same time, I taught Project Wild workshops to local teachers. And then when I got to be in the Endangered Species Program in Austin, I really had the chance to develop more ideas. We were working on ways to work with private landowners and the public and solve some of the controversy uh, surrounding endangered species. And that's all a matter of communication and education. And then finally, I had the chance to, well, actually, it was after children came along and I wanted to kind of simplify life a little bit. I asked, could I take a different job and develop a citizen science program for Texas Parks and Wildlife Department, thinking about getting the public really involved in the hands-on work of wildlife conservation. And so finally, all those years after talking to Dr. Slack at Texas A&M, I figured out how I really was going to bring together people and wildlife. And that, and that program is called the Texas Nature Trackers. 
Yes. So tell us about that. Yes, we called our program Texas Nature Trackers, but it kind of fits into this whole area that we call citizen science. The idea that citizens can become interested in their environment, and because of their interest and presence in different locations, they can gather data that's meaningful for us in terms of seeing how wildlife species are doing and what conservation needs might be there. And so we particularly started Texas Nature Trackers at a time when there were many species that were considered as candidates for listing by the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service for listing as endangered or threatened. Um, And yet these were species that were kind of on a waiting list. We weren't sure about how much information was available, whether they were really in trouble, whether they deserved to be listed or needed to be listed. Um, And so while they were in that waiting period, they were on what we call the candidate list. Well, it turned out that several candidate species became extinct while they were waiting. So it was obvious (laughs) that some of them really were in need of more protection. And yet we had so little information. There were about 250 candidate species in Texas at the time. And we had, um, I think, about six biologists in the endangered species program. Um, And of course, other biologists scattered around the state. But still, the our ability to really gather data on this wide variety of species was limited by manpower. And so we began to explore the idea about whether volunteers could be some of our eyes and ears in the field to find out what was going on with species. And so that was kind of the concept behind starting Texas Nature Trackers. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. I'm here today with Leanne Lynham. She's a biologist, master naturalist, and creator of a program called the Texas Nature Trackers, which is a citizen science program. Um, so how do you, uh, wh- why do you think this program was needed? Why did you feel it was necessary? Well, as we mentioned, there, there were species that we simply didn't know enough about. Um, and they, some of them we thought might be in real trouble. And we knew that citizens could contribute valuable data. For more than 100 years, volunteers had been con- conducting Christmas bird counts for the National Audubon Society. So within the birding community, there was already a real tradition of um, recognizing that people are interested in wildlife and that if we enhance their skills a little bit or give them some information that might be needed, then they would be able to tell us more about what was going on out there. And so we just started thinking about other species for which this might be an applicable model. And we, we thought about things like Texas horned lizards, you know, species that people love, that they can readily identify, that they're motivated to try to see. Um, we included things like monarch butterflies, um, box turtles, whooping cranes. We were hoping to get more reports of whooping cranes in migration in the state. And then we even threw in a few obscure species like amphibians and freshwater mussels. Um, but they were species groups that we knew there was some, some concern about. And we thought, well, let's see if we can get people engaged. Right. And, and over the years, has the program changed any, or, or what's going on in the program now? Well, people would say that we started the program in a time that was uh, pretty primitive in terms of the tools we had available to us. We would mail people uh, paper data sheets, and they would mail paper data sheets uh, back into us. Um, and sometimes they would email us, because email was starting to emerge. Um, but 
we built at that time we built the program around focusing on giving people instructions for particular monitoring techniques for particular groups and then having them keep data on a piece of paper and turn it into us. Um, and so sometimes we had to do things like workshops for things like that to help people learn to identify freshwater mussels or figure out how to do the monitoring techniques for amphibians and recognize amphibian calls. And so we had to be pr pretty hands-on and because of the amount of paper involved and data entry by hand, we were really limited in how fast the program could grow and expand. Well, um, as we all know, things have changed rapidly over the last 20 or 30 years, and so we not only now have the internet readily available to us, but we have everything we really need at our fingertips on our smartphones. And so as, as we wanted to look at ways of simplifying the administration of this program and casting it even more open to more people in more places, uh, the team at Parks and Wildlife looked at going to a platform called iNaturalist, which is a citizen science sort of website that's built for people to report sightings of um, species, and usually they're asked to document those sightings by taking a picture or making a recording of the sound, and then when those sightings are uploaded, they can be um, kind of crowdsourced in terms of identification and verification, and ultimately you can engage specialists on certain projects in verifying the identifications. And so it let us make it much easier for people to submit sightings. We could expand the number of species that we were interested in gathering data on. And so now Texas Nature Trackers is more oriented toward um, trying to educate the public on our species of greatest conservation need in the state and how we would love to have sightings or documentation of those species and that it's so easy to share that documentation via iNaturalist. Uh, Texas Nature Tracker still does a little bit of work with things like workshops and training and they still offer some opportunities to develop on-site monitoring projects, say for a rare plant that's in a particular location and you want to identify the trends in the population numbers, well then a volunteer group might work with a Parks and Wildlife advisor to implement a monitoring plan. Are there other programs besides Texas Nature Trackers that use citizen scientists? Yes, there are um, within and outside of Texas Parks and Wildlife programs that depend upon citizen scientists. For example, our inland fisheries, or our coastal fisheries program rather, uh, developed a Texas Tarpon Watch program. And so that we promote it through Texas Nature Trackers, but it was developed by a different group of biologists and uh, with a different focal group. But what, outside of Parks and Wildlife, the growth of citizen science has been phenomenal for many different agencies who've recognized some of the same possibilities. So in the state of Texas, we have Texas Stream Team that gathers mostly um, water quality monitoring data. The Invaders of Texas website or program has been widely lauded as a training program that engages citizen science in monitoring invasive species in Texas. Um, then there are national programs like IC Turtle, which tracks sea turtles, uh, Monarch Watch, uh, Frog Watch USA is an extension of amphibian monitoring efforts. Journey North is a really neat um, site that tracks a number of species and it's widely used by educators because it lets students watch 
and contribute data for a wide variety of migratory species. And then, of course, for birds, there are many different projects, um, not only National Audubon Society, but Cornell University and their university, their uh, laboratory of Ornithology has really developed a number of excellent citizen science programs, including things like eBird and Feeder Watch and Backyard Bird Counts and that sort of things. So there are a lot of different options for people to there are, get and there, involved. There are some websites that help people find citizen science programs they're interested in. So one is called SciStarter.org, as in ScienceStarter.org, and then there's CitizenScience.gov that plugs people into projects that are run by federal agencies. And so if a person thinks they'd love to know how they could get involved, but they have a particular interest they could search some of those sites and see if anybody's working, for example, on uh, dragonflies or something like that. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Salwa Khan. You may be interested in protecting local endangered species or in maintaining the quality of your water supply. By checking online and with your neighborhood organizations, you will probably find a citizen science project that fits your interests. As our guest, Leanne Lynham says, you can learn about the world of nature around you and at the same time gather research data which helps scientists solve problems that make a difference in your life. You don't have to be a trained biologist or ecologist. It's a way to share the responsibility of caring for our one and only Earth. People like Leanne Lynham who dedicate time and effort to improving the built and natural environment in which we live are both inspirational and vital to us all. Our mission at Mothering Earth is to bring you their stories, people who are taking action in order to create a more sustainable world. So please listen and subscribe to Mothering Earth on your podcast player and encourage people you know to do the same. Back to our interview where I asked Leanne to describe the characteristics of a citizen scientist. You have to be eager to learn and um, inquisitive and be observant, um, be interested in what's going on around you. Um, and then, of course, we do appreciate folks who have a level of follow through in that they go ahead and send in their data um, and they report their observations thoroughly. And But really, it's, it's an opportunity that crosses a lot of boundaries. You know, for example, there are programs that one can do from their their backyard. You know, they you don't even have to be very mobile for people of all kinds of limitations and challenges. Uh, there's probably an opportunity to, to get involved. And, and you mentioned, of course, using, you know, today everyone seems to have a phone, so you can use iNaturalist, but is there any other special equipment you might need or, you know, special items that you'd need to stock up on? Yeah, I mean, sometimes there's the basic things that if you're doing bird work, you're going to need a pair of binoculars. And um, of course, for iNaturalist, you need a phone that's got a, a decent camera. Or if you're trying to photograph and report something that's a little more distant, you know, maybe another type of camera, and then you can upload the photos for it. Um, but basically, you know, it's not complicated materials, um, with the exception of a few programs like the Texas Stream Team has an equipment kit. So it lets the participants are monitoring water quality. So they're going to get the kits that they need to do the assessments. And so you, some projects like that involve a little more hands-on training. 
um, and particular workshops you have to go to, and then a little bit of fundraising to get the equipment that's needed. Um, and then other programs might offer optional trainings or even online kinds of trainings. Um, and then others are just, you can, for example, visit the Texas Parks and Wildlife website, see what target species they're very interested in learning about through nature trackers and just keep that list in your mind as you're out and about and have the chance to grab an observation with your phone camera. So there's really no special training then that you would need if you were to become a, tech, a nature tracker? Not necessarily, yeah, but, but there are opportunities at times. And so, you know, this program has been a natural partnership with the Texas Master Naturalist Program that got started just a few years after Texas Nature Trackers. Because Texas Master Naturalists are keen to learn more about their environment, they're willing to invest in, mm -hmm. in training and um, studying up on subjects. And so Texas Parks and Wildlife's Nature Trackers Program often teaches workshops for Master Naturalists so that they can increase their skills and be more confident in their identification or in their uh, survey techniques so that they know where they might want to look and, and do observations. And so uh, for Texas Nature Trackers, anybody can jump in simply by creating an iNaturalist account visit the Texas Nature Trackers webpage to see what the species of interests are, and then notice that Texas Nature Trackers has certain projects on iNaturalists, such as Herps of Texas, where if you happen to see a box turtle, you can upload the photo and then share it with that project called Herps of Texas, and then it becomes part of the Nature Trackers database. Yeah, that's what I was wondering about. Is how does that information get into get turned into useful data. For... <laughs> yeah, so there will be managers of projects on iNaturalist who take a look at things like identifications and uh, submission data, and sometimes they will even ask for extra information about the observations that really help to answer some questions. So they're providing some oversight and some guidance and some quality control mm -hmm. in the very beginning. And then that data is often used by a wide variety of groups. Um, there are consultants who will look at iNaturalist data sets as a means of knowing what species they should be thinking about if a project is proposed for a certain area. And so even though the data may not yet be considered of quality to where it would be part of the official Parks and Wildlife database, it behooves groups like consultants to know that the possibility of an occurrence of a species is in their area, mm -hmm. and therefore they should be considering that species in terms of the impacts that they're assessing. Um, summary reports are often presented from the data that's collected. For example, Texas Stream Team produces uh, a set of uh, annual reports based upon their uh, this data that's submitted to them. Uh, the data that's in iNaturalist is also really useful for things like metadata analysis, and that's a really common buzzword nowadays. It's referring to the fact that when a lot of data is available about a topic, then even if it comes from people with a wide variety of techniques and a wide variety of capabilities and background qualifications, that if you have enough data, then you begin to see trends that, if nothing else, are meaningful for taking a closer look at or beginning to see where there might be some issues to be concerned about. Um, so as we think about things like climate change, you know, if, for example, there's a 
citizen science project called Bud Burst that looks at when do plants first start to uh, produce flowers and um, leaf buds. And so that particular monitoring project has really detected some changes in terms of flowering and budding period for different species of plants. And so we think we're seeing indication of climate shifts uh, through looking at that data because there's so much data available. And, and sometimes we've even had uh, data published um, from some of these sources. For example, I was able to take the data from Texas Horned Lizard Watch over its first uh, 15 years and look at what has it shown us about the distribution of horned lizards in the state. That was a, a statewide analysis that hadn't taken place for a long time. And, and we not only could get a better look about distribution, but we also even identified features such as the presence of red imported fire ants being an important correlative factor in terms of whether horned lizards were likely to be present or not. Why is that? Do they eat them? So uh, horned lizards' primary uh, diet is made up of ants, but primarily they're eating native ants, the very large harvester ants, or people call them big red ants. Um, and so when fire ants appeared on the scene in Texas, we know that we saw a decline in native ant populations because the fire ants were so aggressive that they literally drove out native ant species. And then in, in addition, um, when fire ants were at their peak in many parts of the state, uh, many entities were very aggressive in trying to get rid of red imported fire ants. And so there were often, there was even aerial broadcasts of pesticides to kill fire ants, which also impacted our native ant yeah. populations. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, it means that when fire ants are present, Texas horned lizards are less likely to be present. We couldn't tease out exactly why, but we saw that that relationship existed. And so now, while they are trying to do reintroduction of Texas horned lizards, even right here in, in Hayes County in central Texas, one of the first things they do is they count the presence of the native ant populations, but also fire ants. And if fire ants are present, then they use really safe environmental techniques like the use of steam to get rid of the red imported fire ants, knowing that that will increase the, the uh, benefit for the Texas horned lizards when they're released there. You're listening to Mothering Earth. I'm Saul Wakan. I'm here today with Leanne Lynham. She's a biologist and master naturalist and creator of the Texas Nature Trackers Program, which is a citizen science program. And um, I was wondering if you could talk about what are the benefits to the community and to the world in general for citizen, with citizen science programs? Well, you know, first I'd say that for the individual, it can be a really rewarding experience. You know, for somebody who enjoys being outdoors, um, but sort of desires to be driven by an idea of contributing something and being part of something bigger, being a part of a citizen science program lets you do that. It lets you pursue your passions, but know that it's not just for yourself, that you're contributing to something bigger in terms of knowledge and perhaps ultimately in conservation actions. It lets you learn some things that are new, and sometimes you just have great experiences. I always think about this one night we were doing a Texas Amphibian Watch workshop at Stephen F. Austin State Park, and we were walking out to a pond to listen to the amphibians, to the frogs and toads. You know, that was our goal, was to hear the sounds of the frogs and toads. But that night, for some reason, the environmental conditions were just right, and these smallmouth salamanders 
had all emerged from the woodlands and the leaf cover, and they were all heading to the pond too. And so as we walked along this trail, we were just accompanying all of these smallmouth salamanders. And so it was just almost a magical time of being at the right place at the right moment. So sometimes, you know, when you are purposely out there looking, you see things that you never imagined. So for the individual, uh, there's a lot of, there's a lot of benefit. Um, There's been a lot of um, analysis because citizen science has become such a emerging popular application across the country and across the world. Really, there's There have been folks who've been looking at, you know, what are the real costs and benefits of citizen science? And um, uh, some studies have actually kind of documented some social effects, as you um, sort of implied. You know, uh, citizen science increases the awareness in its participants about what's going on with those species. Um, It makes them feel empowered uh, about doing something, and that tends to make them get involved in um, furthering conservation efforts, you know, trying to get the next step taken. Uh, It builds trust and collaboration between um, the average citizen and the government entities that sometimes, you know, just wear all these hats simply by themselves. And, um, And it increases, it can increase science literacy. You know, if we do good education as we're recruiting citizen scientists, then they come to understand that the data is useful, but the data has limitations and that some data is more rigorous than others. And all of those are attributes that sometimes we miss in our basic science educations. And so the opportunities exist in citizen science to help people understand that. And then there are benefits to uh, the, the natural world as well. You know, we always hope to see success stories where something we learned through citizen scientists helps us do something we couldn't have done otherwise. I already benefited. I mean, I already mentioned that we found out that red imported fire ants are an important habitat feature to think about as we try to recover Texas horned lizards, which everybody loves. Um, You may have remember it's been about 20 years now, but a Texas master naturalist actually discovered a new species of plant as they were participating in some of their volunteer activities. And so the plant was named for them. And so uh, that's a contribution to science that we wouldn't have had if we hadn't had that engaged volunteer out there. Uh, Not too long ago, a pine tree in Australia, the Wallamy pine was rediscovered. It was thought to be a fossil species, thought to be extinct. And it was, was rediscovered by a citizen scientist. And um, even with my love for amphibians, I love to tell the story that when we first started hearing about the crisis with amphibian populations showing really high levels of malformations, the extra eyes and extra legs and missing limbs, it was actually a group of school children on a field trip in Minnesota who'd gone with their teacher to this pond and they caught frogs and toads and they noticed this and nobody else had ever sounded the alarm. So they may not have been particularly recruited as citizen scientists, but they were citizens who helped us look into a whole new um, conservation challenge that was out there. That's a great story. Um, So what is needed for the future? Is there, uh, what kind of resources or people do we need to keep things like this going? Well, um, of course, more people would be great, you know, and um, at people, mon- uh, people who are conducting citizen science programs need to be thinking about ways of 
keeping their participants involved, helping them get good feedback about how their data is being used and, and saying thank you to them. And so we definitely want to keep more and more people involved. Um, one of the needs that, that I think citizen science really needs to address in the future, though, is that uh, we need to be more diverse in the people that we recruit to it. And so there are a few projects that have reached out to communities that might not normally be involved in citizen science. And most of them have, not all of them have been real natural history oriented. For example, there's been one that's used uh, citizen volunteers in urban areas to map heat islands within the, the city and figure out what parts of the city are subject to uh, climate problems because of the structure of the you know, environment there. Um, but in general, when we look at the people who are engaged in these projects, we're so happy to have their involvement, but they tend to come from similar socioeconomic, similar educational, even similar ethnic group backgrounds. And so we need to think about how can we engage a broader swath of the community in citizen science, and, and that will not only diversify our participants, but help us identify problems we might not have noticed because we weren't going to those places. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I was thinking about that when you mentioned the heat islands. I bet there are other things within cities, within urban areas that could be studied. Right. Um, you know, that'd be useful. I did hear yeah. that in Flint, Michigan, um, when the alarm first was raised mm -hmm. about lead in the water, that they recruited volunteers to collect water samples all over the city. And so that's one of the hallmarks of a good citizen science program is that at the very beginning, you help people understand how this is a part of their life quality as well. Opportunities abound for getting involved in being good stewards for the environment. So if you can, please get involved. Thanks so much for listening. Tell people you know about the Mothering Earth podcast and leave us a review on your podcast platform. Mothering Earth is also on Instagram at mothering underscore earth. Until next time, this is Salwa Khan signing off for Mothering Earth, your source for sustainable living news. <laughs>